Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope you all had a great weekend. I was home for the weekend, finally off the road after a month, but on the road again this week as I'm headed to Phoenix, Arizona for the three-day Solution Tree PLC Summit. I'm looking forward to that. I'll be in Wyoming by the end of the week and next week in Alabama, so it is just a busy time of year. I want to take the time right now to remind you of a few upcoming events for me. Uh, Grading from the inside out, the two-day training based on the book will happen virtually on April 5th and 12th. We'll be face-to-face in Des Moines, Iowa, March 28th and 29th as well as San Antonio, Texas, April 25th and 26th. Now, the standards-based learning and action two-day training will be also in San Antonio, Texas, April 27th and 28th. So you could get a four-day sort of training with myself in San Antonio, uh, two days on the mindset, two days in action. Four days in San Antonio is never a bad thing. Uh, so looking forward to all of those events happening this spring. All of that information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. I'll put links in the show notes for them as well. Okay, as always, thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Dr. Susan Brookhart. Sue, of course, is a giant in the assessment and grading research world, so we cover a breadth of assessment topics. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to share some experiences I've had in supporting schools and districts in their efforts to transform their assessment and grading cultures, and why, especially if you're part of leading this effort, you need to trust the process. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Sue Brookhart is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with something that's been on my mind for a while now, and that is our collective propensity for ruining words. Now, I feel like this is a moment where a disclaimer is needed, because it would be very easy for me to be misunderstood or misquoted here. Okay, so here goes. Here's my disclaimer. I'm not saying the things I'm about to reference are a fallacy. They are not. The words and what they reference are real and we have to be sharply aware of the situations and circumstances within which they arise. I think what I'm about to assert is actually easily distinguishable from the existence of these things, but of course in this day and age we know that some won't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Okay, so here goes. Here's the assertion. We keep ruining words, and I think it's our flair or our desire for the dramatic that makes the overuse of these words so alluring. Exhibit A. The word toxic. Not everything you don't like or that makes you uncomfortable is toxic. Are there toxic people out there? Of course. Are there toxic situations we can find ourselves in? Absolutely. But just because you disagree with someone's opinion or they might happen to assert a different worldview than you doesn't necessarily mean they're toxic. Now, I know some might say, well, Tom, aren't I the one that gets to decide who is and isn't toxic in my life? I suppose, yes. But toxic, is that the right word? My real issue is, and and, and look, maybe I'm alone in this, is that there's a continuum of circumstances that seems to get all lumped together, right? So if I disagree with your political view, I'm toxic. If I choose to live in an optimistic, overly positive way or positive mindset, then I have toxic positivity. If I gaslight you or 
I demean you at work relentlessly to the point where you develop anxiety and depression. That's also called toxic. But do you see what I mean? Are those situations all the same? We have this dichotomy right now in society, I think, where I keep hearing people tell me that words matter. I mean, not me directly, but you hear this, right? Words matter. But then we latch onto a word, we slap that label onto every minor, middle, or major situation that makes us uncomfortable, or we slap it onto every person with whom we are not 100% aligned. And again, I am not saying toxic people or situations don't exist, but if words matter, then I think we need to be a little bit more mindful of when and how we use certain words. Now, where does this come from? Now, I bet you know where I'm going with this, right? If you've been listening long enough to this podcast, you know what I'm going to say. It comes from social media. My love-hate relationship with social media continues to thrive. I like it. I might even say I need it. But there is some real performative hyperbolic bullshit that goes on that makes me just roll my eyes and think to myself, am I the only one that sees through this? Surely I'm not the only one who sees this. We know the dramatic is what sells on social media. We know extreme sells on social media, right? So if I say my, I, I disagree with my principle or that my principle is pushing me out of my comfort zone, it's crickets. But if I say my principle is toxic, boom, likes, retweets, external validation, dopamine hits, the whole thing. My problem is that we are saturating our spaces with these words and we're overusing them. And it ruins it for the situations for which the label actually applies. Because when words get overused, I think most people start tuning out. And that is the absolute last thing we want them to do when individuals are dealing with real toxicity. We all know the story, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. And I think the lesson found within that story is quite applicable. We need to have the space cleared so when someone rightly and accurately proclaims toxic, we understand that this is a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. Where's the line between you're toxic or I'm overly fragile? I don't know where that line is, but it's somewhere. And that line exists. And I think we owe it to ourselves to try to find that line. In almost every situation, it takes two. Both sides may need to seek a middle ground, right? I need to be a little less toxic, whatever that means, again, in the situation. And maybe you need to be a little bit more resilient. From my experience, it's rare that one side is solely responsible for the results of any human interaction. I mean, I could even be toxic to someone from their view, but not really be toxic from a more objective view. Now, if right now you're thinking about some extreme situation to disprove my point, then you're actually proving my point. Extreme means exceeding the ordinary or, or the usual. That's toxic, exceeding the usual. Because if we label everything toxic, then nothing is. Now, another word, exhibit B, if you will, phobic. Having a phobia means to be afraid, you know? Webster's defines it as an exaggerated, unusually inexplicable or illogical fear of a particular object, a class of objects, or situations. But the term gets hijacked and inserted into situations where, again, someone disagrees with you. If you were someone or are someone who opposes gay marriage or trans rights, 
you were called homophobic or transphobic. And I'm not sure those who opposed those things were necessarily afraid. You know, for me, other words come to mind. And I'm sorry if you don't agree with me, but maybe bigot, that kind of comes to mind. Or, I don't know, asshole, that comes to mind. It's not necessarily a phobia. Sorry, I... I I seem to be swear, swearing a lot on, in this opening. And if you're a first-time listener, I promise you, I don't do that on every episode. But, you know, sometimes there just isn't another word that works. I'm not sure there are any synonyms for the word asshole, right? Any synonym weakens the assertion. Okay, I'll, look, okay, I'll stop swearing. Okay. <laughs> Phobic has become this suffix slapped onto everything. Again, if you disagree with something, you must be afraid of it. Phobias are real. Homophobic and transphobic people definitely exist, but if, again, we keep saturating our spaces with the same word, phobic, they're going to lose the power that they would otherwise carry, right? We attach these onto the end of a word. I also recognize that our propensity for using such words is designed to put people on the defensive, right? A dramatic assertion forces others to defend themselves, which can easily begin sounding like making excuses. I'm sure you can think of other words too. There are toxic people out there. There are toxic situations out there. There are phobic people out there. Those things are real, and they need to be afforded the space to be dealt with, both as individuals, but also as a society as a whole. However, if we want society to remain vigilant with those truly toxic or phobic situations, we have to stop spraying every hint of discomfort with those labels, and they don't really match the circumstances. I'm not saying people should be allowed to make you uncomfortable. What I am saying is that if they do, it can often be dealt with in a way that keeps the situation and circumstances in perspective. Extreme situations are extreme and unusual, not the norm. We have to stop overusing words. Overusing words weakens them and often has the opposite effect of what was intended. People, whether you like it or not, are going to start tuning out if we keep this up. Now, if we can keep things in perspective and use the right words in the right situations, we'll have the bandwidth to deal with those truly toxic or phobic people or situations. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Susan Brookhart. Sue is a professor emerita at the School of Education at Duquesne University. She is also an independent education consultant, professional developer, and prolific author. Uh, Sue's interests include the role of both formative and summative classroom assessment in student motivation and achievement, the connection between classroom assessment and large-scale assessment, and of course, grading. Uh, Sue is the 2007 to 2009 editor of Educational Measurement, uh, Issues in Practice, which is a journal of the National Council of Measurement in Education. She's an author or co-author of 20 books and numerous articles and book chapters on classroom assessment, teacher professional development, and evaluation. She has also received the 2014 Jason Millman Award from the Consortium of Research on Educational Assessment and Teaching Effectiveness, and the 2015 Samuel J. Messick Memorial Lecture Award from ETS. So an illustrious career, to say the least. On a personal note, uh, Sue has been a huge influence on my thinking around assessment and grading, so I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Sue, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's delightful to be here. 
Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. I'm so happy you agreed to join me today because what I said is true. Uh, I have looked to you on many occasions for guidance around assessment, on grading, on building rubrics, and uh, sort of the, the whole range of topics in the assessment and grading area. I would say you are a major influence on, on my career. So, And I know that there are so many different directions that we could go with this conversation, and we have a limited amount of time. So what I think I want to do today is I want to begin with sort of a view from 30,000 feet and then maybe get into more specifics as we, we go through our conversation together. So I want to begin with this idea of an assessment system. You know, so many people talk about developing an assessment system in their schools or their districts. But when you press educators on what that actually means, some are actually quite challenged to articulate it clearly. And so they just sort of divert to this idea of I'll know it when I see it, which, of course, isn't really good enough. So <laughs> from your perspective, Sue, um, what does it mean to develop a comprehensive assessment system? Um, that's a good question. And I have two answers. The, the first answer is the official answer that you'll see in lots of published works, not only mine, but lots of people's. Uh, if a district has uh, says it has an assessment system, it usually means that it has a, or thinks it has, a comprehensive and coherent set of assessments that together cover the information needs of people at various levels in the system, from the superintendent on down to the kids, and uh, various, um, I guess I'd say grain sizes of information. So the superintendent doesn't really need to know what Johnny needs to learn tomorrow. He needs to know how math is doing in our district. Uh, so they need very aggregated, very large constructs, very generalized information, like you might get from a state test. Um, and the teacher, can't teach on generalized information. She really does need to know what exactly should I be working on tomorrow morning? So um, a comprehensive assessment system has all of those information bases covered with a set of assessments. And uh, the idea of coherence is that they should all be uh, complementary uh, with an E, uh, completing each other. So that if, for instance, the, the formative uh, classroom assessments talk about writing as a process, then uh, a uh, writing large-scale accountability test is not slapped on that sees writing as um, a sort of reified one-time thing. So uh, that's typically what what people do and they do things like assessment audits. So they go through and they mention all the assessments that are available, who uses them and do they get the information they need? And all those are great things to do. Um, and most people find um, that their own, oh, there's another sense of comprehensive too. And that is that all important learning goals are indexed somewhere that we don't miss a few just because they don't, there's not a test or a performance assessment for them. Um, and an audit on just that is great and also often shows districts little places where they need to plug some holes or where um, sometime I worked with them, the regents in New York once, they did a little audit process and many districts found that they had too much. They could cut some of their assessments because they had, for instance, many places where student writing was assessed and they didn't need that redundant information. Uh, 
so that's my official and first answer. And you can you can read all sorts of authors' takes on that, from very scholarly to very practical. I also like to talk about a systems aspect to classroom assessment that people don't usually talk about, uh, but that is actually, I think, at least as important, if not, I mean, I'm a former teacher, not a former administrator, so to me it's more important, but you know, that's where I came from. And that is that the system of learning in your classroom, what the teacher does, what the students do, what together they think learning is, how they make their, uh, you know, is this the kind of, of a classroom where student questions are welcomed or where uh, students are actually, when they talk, just looking for ways to be shown that they have right answers. Uh, classroom management, how, you know, what counts as, as, a, as a good thing to ask or a good thing to do and uh, how, how you even reward and punish students if you do that for, or, or, or do you do something else besides rewarding and punishing and help, help have them help um, create an atmosphere where everybody tries to learn. All of those things in a classroom make a huge difference in how both formative assessment and uh, classroom summative assessment, which is grading, mm -hmm. happen. Um, you can have the most wonderful feedback, but if students think the, they're not really there to learn, they're there to score points, it'll wash right over a lot of right. it. You can have a really great grading policy, but if students see a grading policy as their reward for doing something, then if you don't grade it, they won't do it. And you, at least as much as me, have certainly heard complaints about both formative assessment and grading things. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, it's not working. It's not that they're doing something wrong. They're inserting something that should be a good thing into a system that's not set up for the kids or the teachers to really take it seriously. So the systemic, cultural, I'm, I'm not sure what word I want to use, but how everything works together. It's instruction, it's assessment, it's um, classroom climate, it's classroom management. All together, that little system in a classroom is to me really the one I, I, I want to work on. I think it's a harder nut to crack. Anybody can list a bunch of assessments and give them. Um, but when they talk about assessment systems, they, they usually mean the first thing that I said, not the second. Right. So we're really talking about uh, sort of a, a assessment system on a macro level, which sort of looks at the relationship between classroom assessment, district-wide assessment, state assessments, even sometimes international assessments. And then we're talking about the systems on a micro level, which is this idea of what happens in the classroom, the systems in the classroom. You, you made me think of uh, just some recent sort of conversations I've had with teachers and that you know, we have cultivated this culture. You brought up grading, and we are definitely going to talk about grading in this conversation. But just as kind of a, a, a dropping a little bit of a nugget here, the conversations I've had recently a lot with teachers is the fact that we have turned grading into this currency or this transaction where it's like, you know, if the student does this, then they get the points. And we've turned this relationship into kind of a transaction, which it's no wonder a student looks at that situation or that culture and then says, well, if you're not grading this, if I'm not getting the points, then why would I do that? We've almost kind of nurtured that, haven't we? We've kind of created an environment in the classroom where we've turned grades into a currency as opposed to them being a reflection of learning. Would you assertion? 
Absolutely. And the vernacular, uh, listen to teachers talk about grading. They'll say he earned yeah. um, like it was money. And yeah. there was a time, you know, when you and I were in school, um, most of the pl most places that was, um, you need a little rhyme. It's not about what they earned. It's about what they learn. But you also <laughs> need to put your money where your mouth is or practice mm -hmm. what you preach or pick your aphorism in a class yeah. and act like that. Because if you say that as the teacher, but then you, your policies and practices assume that it is about what you're earning because you haven't yeah. removed the behavioral stuff into another part of your practice. Right. Um, the kids are not, it would be dumb for them to do something that doesn't count if you are con constantly messaging that they need to do what counts. Um, right, right. So, yeah, we did it to them. We can undo it, but we do have to right. undo it before all the good stuff that you and I both talk about with teachers yeah. will work. For sure. And listeners, you've heard that phrasing many times. Ken O'Connor last spring, Tom Gusky over a year ago. It's we've trained them into it. Uh, Sue here today, we can train them out of it, but we do have to train them out of it. Another phrase that teachers often use or students even use it is my teacher gave me an mm -hmm. A or my teacher gave me a B. Anyway, we're going to get into the grading in a, in a moment. Um, we know that um, there's near unanimous agreement in the academic literature uh, that effective feedback is how we improve achievement and how we improve learning. And I want to get to feedback in a moment. Um, but first, I want to talk about now the the formative purpose of assessment. Um, obviously, in order to provide feedback, we have to first gather evidence of the student's current standing and use strategies. So now we know that formative assessment is not a new process or a new strategy. And yet it seems like, and I'm not sure if you've had this same experience, but I seem to run into a multitude of operational definitions about what formative assessment is. So Sue, I'm looking to you to set the record straight here <laughs> once and for all. <laughs> What are the fundamental principles of formative assessment that teachers really do need to adhere to? Uh, well, I don't know if I can do anything once and for all because there are many <laughs> authors who Come on now. made a lot of hay writing about nobody agrees on formative. The formative purpose part is not difficult. And people yeah. who try to make it difficult are just plain resistant or something. Mm -hmm. um, formative means that you use the assessment information to form something. And most of the time, you're talking about forming student learning. And for me, that means that the students have to use the information as well. I personally would have loved to stick with that as the definition of formative assessment, where students and teachers together use assessment information for the teachers to teach, better and for the students to figure out uh, what to think next or study next or how to act next in their learning. But um, as several authors, uh, including most recently in my case, Dylan William have said, it, it's not worth fighting the fight. People will still call things like interim assessments formative mm -hmm. because they actually do form something, but what they form is teacher lesson plans. And it's yet another step before you get to student learning. Um, I, I think he's right. Um, I'm willing to say that it's a purpose. It's not an assessment. You can use a unit test as a formative assessment. If you give back the unit test and have kids go through it and, and summarize what they still need to study and give them a chance to do that, and that's a formative use of what is a summative assessment. Uh, but 
the formative purpose, as long as you're forming something that will lead to learning, yeah. that's formative. Mm -hmm. uh, where we get into trouble is, uh, and why I wanted to keep students as a requirement of the definition, and I'm, I think I've lost that battle, is <laughs> that it's not new that teachers, I mean, even years ago, before you and I were born, teachers, it's not a new idea that teachers look at what their kids can do and then they give them the next thing. Uh, it, we didn't call it formative assessment. Not all teachers did it. Some of them walked through textbooks. I realize that, but uh, that's not a new idea. And teachers, good teachers, do do that. And that, that is acting formatively. What's new is that we have realized, um, and it's only since well, since behaviorism passed and cognitive psychology, cognitive learning theory came in, and then all the spinoffs of that, um, that we realize the kids have to have their head in the game. They're not just responders to our lesson plans. And that's newer. Uh, it's not new for people. I mean, that was what, the 60s when that thought started to happen in, in research. But by education standards, it's it's a newer percolating into practice. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think people need to, that's the thing you need to wave the flag about because the other isn't isn't anything you have any trouble convincing people to do. Right. Um, so I like to emphasize the fact that effective formative assessment involves students in understanding what it is they're trying to learn at some level uh, and aiming for it and uh, choosing both cognitive and motivational and behavioral strategies to try and get them there. Um, you know, good teachers, uh, good teachers realize that if you give them the information like that, they will help you teach it, <laughs> teach it to them. Because, you know, if it's clear where they're going, they'll, they'll try to get most of the kids most of the time will try to get there. Yeah. Um, so formative assessment is, is information, assessment that yields information for decisions that yield, that lead to learning. And my personal emphasis would be on those classroom learning level, lesson level things that involve students. Yeah, I think you bring up two really, I mean, you brought up a lot of great points, but there's two points that really resonated with me. One was the idea of forming. I love that notion of forming because that implies action and doing. So I think sometimes the the idea that, um, you know, a, a formative is a summative that doesn't count is kind of the, the operational definition that some people use and realizing mm -hmm. that in order for an assessment to be formative, it needs to be used formatively, like we need to take action and form. And the other point that we brought up right there at the end is that, you know, the informing of classroom practice, every assessment theoretically has the potential to be used formatively, but which are the ones that are going to drive the day-to-day -day instruction? And that's the information that teachers need to gather the evidence. So we take inventory on where they are. And that day-to-day -day classroom practice, I think is, is really where we, you know, we, we, where students benefit the most in terms of the actions that teachers take, which provides them with the opportunity to provide next steps or what's feedback and having students in that process as well. So, as well. so, so let's talk about feedback because I think this is sort of the epicenter, if you will. We know that the research says that feedback, effective feedback is how we improve student learning. So let's talk about some of the nuances. Um, you know, one of the continual frustrations is 
for me, I think is the oversimplified way with which feedback is talked about in the field. Sometimes I see on social media reference to this idea that, you know, just provide the feedback and you'll have this learning explosion is, you know, provide feedback in absence of a grade or a score and learning will go through the roof. And I, it just Mm -hmm. rarely plays out that way. And I think it's a lot more complex and a lot more nuanced and a lot more contextually sensitive. So, um, you know, sometimes, you know, feedback, even despite all our best efforts is it doesn't work. And so, I guess the question I have for you is what are some of the nuances, some of the important fundamentals that we need to think about when it comes to effective feedback in a classroom? Uh, uh, another good question. <laughs> this goes back to that idea of a classroom climate of learning rather than a climate of being evaluated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, remember you, you just said um, that formative assessment is not actually summative assessment that doesn't count. In a classroom where formative assessment is summative assessment that doesn't count, why should I look at the feedback? Right. It's only if I'm trying to learn something, not trying to score points, that the feedback is actually feedback. If I'm not, if I'm just, and the opposite of that, uh, you think, well, what else would the kids be doing? Uh, kids in, in the other paradigm we're talking about are compliers to, with teacher directions. Sometimes willingly, oh, Mrs. Brookhart is so nice. I'll do whatever she asks her to do. But they're not doing, they're doing it because I asked them to do, not because they realize that if they do this, they'll learn to write better or they'll learn a certain kind of math better or whatever. Mm-hmm. Only if you're trying to learn something is feedback advisory to your little effort to do it. Otherwise, it's just another set of teacher directions you have to follow. And if it's just another t- set of teacher directions you have to follow, that, that again, that's that, that's a compliance thing. Right. And, and it doesn't engender or, or uh, bring out those uh, self-regulated, I'm, I'm going to change some something I'm thinking or some of my motivations to do this. I'm going to realize I should take it seriously or uh, some behaviors like I am going to choose to do that next problem or I'm going to choose to look back at this problem I just did because you know, I'm not sure about it. Or the, all of those student choices only make sense if feedback is in the context of we're all trying to learn this. And I personally, the student, am trying to learn this. So that classroom culture is a big thing. Um, another thing about feedback is a lot of the feedback studies study characteristics of the message. You know, is it immediate? Is it detailed? Is it descriptive rather than evaluative? All great things, which you and I both routinely recommend teachers do. Uh, But that's just one part of the message. Feedback as an episode of learning in this little cycle where I'm trying to learn something and I practiced and I get some feedback and then I needs a couple more things besides um, a clear message that is intended helpfully instead of evaluatively. Uh, One of them is that the teacher has to learn something in that feedback episode. They have to learn something about the student is expected to learn something about what they should do next. Fine. But that's not all of it. The teacher also should learn something about what the student is thinking. So the student can make, so the teacher can make an informed next, not only informed next instructional move, but an informed choice about what to put in that feedback. Mm -hmm. Because you could put, a hundred things in feedback on most kids' work. But effective feedback picks those ones that that kid should do next. 
And you don't know what that is unless you have some interpretation or understanding of what the student is thinking. So feedback episodes need to give teachers formative information as well. And then finally, you'd think this one would be a duh, but it's often overlooked. And that is kids have to have an opportunity to use the feedback. Right. right either right then or maybe tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't have to be 30 seconds from now, but if you just give kids feedback and think, oh, they'll mull it over and they'll use it next time. <laughs> they sit, even very dutiful students who love school and love your class. That's not how it works. Right. The feedback is advisory too. And you need, you need to what? In writing, it's easy to see. Well, you have to create another draft or revise your sentence or something like that. But it works like that in almost all feedback in any subject. If, if I don't get a chance to take that feedback on board in my little, remember, we're, we're realizing that kids actually do their own learning. They don't just, they're not just an empty head and you pour in facts. Um, if they don't have a chance to do something, it's gone. Yeah. So that's, and, and that's often overlooked for time reasons or because the teacher has to, feels like she has to move on. And I, I often, I, you probably get asked too, oh, feedback, good feedback takes so much time. To go. Don't give them feedback unless you're also going to give them time to use it. Right. So I say all that, that all the time. You just want to, want them to know what you're thinking about your, don't do it. Yeah. Cause it will, if they even read it, it will go in one ear and out the other. Out the other, for sure. I, it, you make me, you know, think of two things that I often say in workshops and, and at conferences, et cetera, yeah, about that opportunity. I, I say often for the right reasons, teachers are often guilty of giving students too much feedback. And I, and I say to them, you gauge too much by the amount of time you're prepared to give students to act upon the feedback. If you're going to give them ample opportunity to act, then maybe you can increase the amount that they would be working on. But, but if they're not, if you're not going to provide them with a lot of time, if you say are pressed for time, then maybe just focus on that, which is most pressing. So on the one hand, I think that there's times where we almost overdo it, where we're almost correcting or editing the work as opposed to providing feedback. And the other thing I often say is that we often do too much of the thinking for the students that providing feedback that can be very efficient in the form of, you know, highlighters or questions or cues or prompts, something that triggers and allows a student to step back into the rubric of the criteria, et cetera, to, to kind of help self-assess and guide them through that process. So I think your point about you know, not giving the opportunity, the idea that through osmosis or existence that the feedback will somehow be absorbed into students, uh, that they'll, they'll do it next time. Uh, no. And certainly, you know, I want to, um, I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't ask you about, uh, rubrics, as Sue, I have to say that probably one of the biggest areas of influence that you've had on me. And I know you've had it on so many people, um, for your guidance. And I know that sometimes we use the rubrics as a source of where or and how we provide feedback to students. So th I think there's a real link here between feedback and criteria, of course. Um, so, you know, I have two quotes from you that I use in my workshops constantly from you, and they are almost always a part of, of my assessment and grading training. Uh, the first one, here's the first one, I'm gonna share this quote with you and, and just ask you to sort of expand on it. It comes from your 2013 book, How to Create and Use Rubrics for Formative Assessment and Grading. And by the way, listeners, if you wanna know anything about building rubrics, that is the resource you want to look to. Okay, so here's the quote, and I love this because it really aligns with, with my thinking as well. And, and this has been a big influence on me. 
You say, quote, the biggest mistake teachers make when they use rubrics with performance assessment is that they focus on the task, the product, and not the learning outcome of the proficiency the task is supposed to get students to demonstrate, end quote. So this has led me to be quite forceful in my assertion that rubrics need to be task neutral, that they need to really focus on developing gradations of quality against the standards so that the criteria and therefore subsequently the feedback is more transferable when teachers are assessing the same learning, but creating multiple tasks that are associated with that learning. So I'm assuming you agree with that based on that quote and correct the record if, if I'm wrong, uh, but still, what are some of the other principles that, that teachers should keep in mind when they are developing their rubrics? Because I know that rubrics is a topic that teachers, they understand the importance of fully articulating criteria, but they struggle in terms of that. So some advice for teachers when they start to build criteria for learning, out, learning goals and, and standards. Another good question. Well, all of the advice that I'm going to give stems from that observation that the rubric is, is about um, assessing the learning. Right. And in the process, of course, you assess the task. I mean, that's the vehicle. Nobody, nobody's trying to say the task doesn't count. If you can do a general rubric that is task neutral or at least applies to a set of tasks, narrative writing rubric or something, um, then students not only can transfer, but they can internalize those descriptions of what good work looks like, and they can use it. Eventually, they won't even need the rubric to write a narrative or whatever. Um, but even if you have to be task specific, if there is something that's so unusual about what you've asked your kids to do, that you feel you need to be task specific, at least take that same principle that it needs to be about the learning and say what qualities of this task would show that the student has learned a concept that's in the standards or learned a skill that's in the standard or whatever your school uses, if not standards. Evidence of learning. And where that goes often for rubrics is don't count. The yeah. student used had the student only had three grammar errors. Well, what if the student used all kinds of fancy language and complex sentences and dropped a comma here too, and some other student only used subject predicate period and little tiny vocabulary words that they spelled all correctly, no grammar errors, but who's the better writer? The first one. So counting almost never works. And if counting does work, you're looking at something like a multiple choice test rating to be born, or you're looking at a behavior like um, key keyboarding 50 words a minute. Well, that is important, but that's, that's a, uh, that you're not no longer in the cognitive domain. You're in the, um, the physical domain. It's a different right. domain. Um, mm -hmm. So don't count. And I have had teachers because they love this and it's, they can proof text it to kids here. Here, you got this three because you had three errors, count them. But um, it doesn't, it's not a good indicator, it mismeasures kids. And uh, the other thing that I would say if, um, when you're putting rubrics together is make your criteria about things to do with learning and understanding or with the skill, if it's a skill, but, um, but not about surface level features. And it just kills some people to not have a criterion for 
I don't know, the quality of the illustrations in the report. Right, right. But, and you certainly want to encourage high quality illustrations in a report. Mm -hmm. But if the standard doesn't say anything about making pretty pictures, <laughs> then what you need to do is say, well, why am I worried about that? Oh, I want the pictures to actually indicate something about what they're learning. So you might have a criterion about the appropriateness of the illustrations. In a science um, lab report, you might have a, a criterion about the appropriateness of the graphs. Do they actually communicate the main points of the findings? Mm -hmm. So it's not that they're pretty. It's something to do with, uh, with the substance. Yeah. And if you can't find a connection like that, just say, you know, I want to show people how much nicer it is when the illustrations are great, but that's not, that, that won't give me any information or that won't give the student any information about right. what they're learning. So get rid of surface level feature it has to be eight pages. Yeah. I, <laughs> you might give them that as a direction in an assignment. We're mm -hmm. expecting this will be about eight pages. You could give them a checklist of things to look at before. Is it eight pages or at least close? Yeah. Uh, because what I'm thinking about is in-depth enough that probably if it's only two pages, it's not. But you don't, the, the rubric for feedback and grading, for the cognitive, lear, the learning feedback and grading is about what they wrote in those two pages. Or right, eight, right. Or whatever it is. So the quality, no, yeah. No surface level features. It's hard. Um, I have literally had fights, well, polite professional fights with teachers <laughs> in tears. Because when you give especially beginners at, at whatever you're teaching, rubrics that say it has to be this, it has to be that, it has to have three mm -hmm. pictures, it has to, then they go down the rubric like little teacher pleasers and they come up with something that looks like they're learning. Yeah. But that's not evidence that they are. That's right. Yeah. I think when I work, you know, when I work with teachers and help them develop criteria, I say, if you're going to, especially when they're sort of newer to building rubrics, if you're going to use numbers, add a qualifier, a, a, a sort of a, a quality statement beyond it. So at least two examples that deeply connect or support the assertion at the topic sentence or trying to help them see uh, that that whole notion of that, uh, you know, it's it's just finish the thought. Uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, through your influence, for sure, I've adopted the phrasing, you know, quality over counting in the idea that when you build your criteria, it should be a gradation of quality, not counting features and these sort of binary choices. Um, you know, the other thing I, I wanted to touch base with you on, Sue, is, is uh, a question I get a lot uh, is, you know, when teachers get into building rubrics, the question is, what type of rubric should I use? Should I use an analytic rubric? Should I use a holistic rubric? Should I use a single point rubric? What what types of rubrics? So when you get that question, you know, what type of rubric should I use? How do you answer that question? Um, go first, think first about purpose. If it's a rubric that you are going to use with students in their practice work, and then use the same rubric or one very much like it to grade, then analytic, analytic gives more feedback. If you get a, have like three or four criteria and the teacher can indicate something about each of them, then the student has at least three or four elements of feedback there. Right. Um, instead of a holistic rubric, which would use the same criteria, but it would use them 
uh, one of those judgments of on balance, this is what your work looks like. And the student might not know, you know, has, has a takes a reasonable, expresses a, a re, an opinion, a clear opinion and uh, supports it with, um, with good evidence. And if the student gets a three instead of a four on that rubric, and it's a holistic rubric, they don't, unless there's additional written feedback, they don't know, should I work on my opinion, have uh, my clarity of my opinion, or should I work on my support or whatever? So analytic gives better feedback. Yeah. Uh, if it's quick, if it's like the final exam, the kids aren't going to see it and you're not going to holistic, it's quicker. And uh, holistic is, does not mean you have fewer criteria. It's just that you consider them all at once. Right. Um, I am not a huge fan of single point rubrics and I will, you know, never say never, but here's why. Uh, one of, for me, the great things about rubrics is that they not only have criteria, but they have performance level descriptions across the range of performance. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a student and I don't support my opinion very well, I can read what a one, a two, a three, and a four looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I can match my work to those. And I can say, oh, I'm here. But if I did that, I could, even without teachers writing additional feedback. Right. Um, and single point rubrics that are essentially a criterion down the middle and yeah. you know more or less they 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 push in my mind toward the evaluative kind of thinking there are not those descriptions of so what does it look like if i'm just beginning and my support is weak but it's there mm -hmm. um and there's not that descriptive in the box under two that says um several reasons are mentioned but don't but are not explicitly connected to the uh, the point of view the mm -hmm. author is taking or whatever and mm -hmm. and this without those descriptions i think rubrics lose i know they lose a lot of formative power which for me is the you know the more important part mm -hmm. um and uh if you use them in grading they just you know it's it's so i'm looking at this are you better or worse it's it, it right. sort of pushes people toward a more evaluative decision rather than the descriptive stuff in those. I think the I think the um, the argument from some I suppose is the uh, and I and I think this may be a fair point is that they they on the one hand they do allow for more personalized feedback and more personalized description but I think it's naive not to recognize they are definitely more labor intensive that to use a single point rubric is is uh, going to take up much more time and the lack of performance indicator along the gradation of quality, I think, would be something to be aware of. And, and maybe using a single point rubric in tandem with your analytic rubric might be, you know, build the analytic rubric. And then maybe from there, tangentially, you can build your holistic rubric or build your your single point rubric, maybe for peer assessment or anything like that. They're, 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 I suppose it's, that's where some teachers go with that. Interesting to hear you say that you're not a, not a big fan of it, but I think the reasons are, are pretty clear and, and certainly yeah. um, I understand where you're coming from. But I want to talk about, um, I want to talk specifically about grading because one of the, uh, there's two parts to the grading conversation. I want to pick up this idea of rubric because I know that something teachers really do struggle with is using an analytic rubric for grading. When, especially when you have, say, a, you know, a number of aspects of quality on your rubric. Let's just, for argument's sake, say you have six by four rubric. You've got six aspects of quality, four gradations, or six, yeah, six aspects of quality, four gradations along the top. And now I have to put a single entry into my gradebook. 
you know, I only have one space for it. I don't have the opportunity to enter six grades or six scores or six right. levels, et cetera. Nor should so, you. yeah, nor should you. So, so what's the advice? How do you, what's the most, most effective way to grade using an analytic rubric? Um, if you're talking about literally the calculation that you do to get from that literally. matrix of how do stuff, I, how do I get, yeah, how do I get a score or a level? I, my personal favorite is the median because okay. they're, they're not, um, let me say first what you should not do. Okay. Do not average them in the sense yeah. of, you know, four, you know, three out of four is 75%. Right. Don't three, add out of the box and find the ratio. That's right. No, don't do that. Because a three and a four point rubric usually is pretty much uh, proficient, not great, but pretty much uh, what you were aiming for. Um, mm -hmm. And a two is on the way. It's not right. two out of four is 50%. Don't do that. Right, right. There are lots of other ways to do it. Um, I like to take the median because rubrics, they're not, um, they're just orders. It's not the case that you have to learn as much to get from the bottom of a two to a three as you do from the bottom of a three to a four. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, ballpark chunks of quality. And so if you have six rubrics, uh, six criteria, and uh, three of them are fours, and two of them are threes, mm -hmm. and the other one is a two, um, I could argue that, and you take the median, that's three and a half. So you've got a borderline mm -hmm. score. You've got to decide, is it more like a, a four? overall or more like a three. Um, you can average though, if you average those things, fours and threes and twos, and you come out with yeah. three point something, uh, I don't know how much violence that does, but then then you need to say what, what when you put it in that grade book, what's gonna happen to it? Because if it right. then eventually gets averaged so that it feels like it's out of four points, yeah, uh, don't do that either. Another way to do it is to, to make a decision rule and say, yeah. if I have at least three fours, um, and not nothing, uh, none of the others are a one or whatever, then it's a four. Again, right. that's that's perfectly all right. It's also okay with me to um, to mix decision, mix the way you do that based on the kind of assignment and rubrics you have. Okay. Uh, as long as you don't average them and as long as you don't put them in a grade book where eventually they will get averaged and that violence will be done to them. Yeah. So I'm, I'm less concerned about boiling the six down to one uh, summary number um, mm -hmm. than I am. What happens to that summary number when you stick it in the grade book? Does it, is there something in there that says out of six eventually mm -hmm. that makes it part of an average? Um, yeah, because that will mess you up. It will yeah. not not keep the meaning that you intended it to have. Right. So meetings, I think that the, averages, decision rules, as long as they're yeah. within the context of the rubric, you're OK. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've you know, I've tried to curb my language, too, and talking about rubrics and not calling it a four point 
scale, but calling it a four level scale. And then trying to not use the word point to give the association of that sort of traditional point accumulation mindset. Um, yeah, no, I think there's lots of different ways to do it. I think it's important to just help guide that decision. Okay, let's uh, finish up by talking about grading. Here's the second quote that I often use. And I want to ask you on the heels of this quote to talk about some of the principles of grading that ensure teachers accurately report. But this is one of my favorite quote, super quotes that I are is always a staple in my workshop. And it is this, it's from the 2013 handbook on, on uh, classroom assessment and, and grading. It was a chapter you wrote in that. The, and, the, and the quote is this, quote, validity is in question when the construct to be measured is not purely achievement, but rather some mix of achievement and non-achievement factors. And I often paraphrase that with people by saying, if I were to say that in layman's terms, I would say the accuracy of what we grade and report uh, is compromised when what we're assessing is not purely achievement, but a mix of how much I know and how well behaved I am. So uh, what are some of the principles of grading that, uh, you know, on the heels of that quote around validity, what are some of the other principles of grading as we finish up here today, Sue, that teachers should keep in mind to ensure yeah, accurate we, reporting? Um, I do want to finish up because I have actually have another call coming, but it's, um, <laughs> we'll get you out of here. It's um, the, the principle of assessing achievement, I first want to say, is does not mean that grades turned into standardized tests. They do not. No. 100 years of research says they never will. Classroom learning does include some contextual things. You learn, for instance, to read or write in the, in the cocoon of the kinds of stories and writing assignments you got in the classroom that are not necessarily that those disembodied kinds of questions that come on standardized tests. So nobody is asking you to take the heart out of classroom grading when we ask people to take the, the behavior part out. Um, we're just asking you to say, what of this, how does this work stack up to what I expected given the assignment I give, gave, given the instruction this kid's been through um, with all the context and text. Um, the first thing I'd say is before you even grade, communicate clear learning targets to the kids. Because mm -hmm. if they're not trying to learn it, then you have no business be grading them on it. Um, make sure your assignments are of high quality. So if a student really is learning that, that it will be, a, it will show because not every assignment actually gets, elicits the kind of response you might want it to. Use practice and formative assessment during learning so that it's not just summative assessment that doesn't count, but it, what it is is another step on the way and the kids know that. So, um, and then um, make sure that the students do know where they are in that learning journey and, and what they've got. So that when you get to grading, it almost ought to be that you and the student could say, well, <laughs> we know you're a, a three or a four or whatever it is. Right. When you put report card grades together, some of what we were just talking about, make sure that all of the assignments that you aggregate together are talking about the same thing. So if it's standards-based, that they're all talking about the same standards, but even in traditional grading, that they're all talking about what the student was supposed to have been learning in your class this report period. Um, if, if you, which means you have to keep standards-based 
records if right. if you're doing standards. Use multiple measures. And I, I mean that not in a sense of let's give the kids two or three tries, but different assignments get at different aspects of student understanding and putting them together, you have a richer picture of what students know. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, 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 big, the big math or quantitative reasoning one that, that people yeah. often don't like to think about, but is super important, is maintain, use some sort of uh, way to put the grades together that maintains the meaning. So if you have, uh, I'll use a stupid example now just to make the point obvious, but if you have a test that you've graded and a kid gets, I don't know, 88%, and that's one of your grades. And then you have a big report that was graded on a four-point rubric. So the kid has a three. <laughs> if you put those together in some obvious ways, it's going to be basically how the kid did on the test because 88 is going to wash out three. Right. So you need to make sure that you use some kind of combining methods, which I won't bother to spew out now, but they're right. books, yeah. mine, yours, others, that... Yeah. That, that maintain the meaning of what comes out the end of that so that mm -hmm. the project, if it was a project, counts what it's supposed to count, perhaps equal to the test, maybe even more to the mm -hmm. test, depending on whatever you told the kids. So that, um, and those combinatory methods are, are not always obvious. You have to think about them. And in your grading uh, software, you have to check and make sure that the grading software is doing what you think it's doing. And right. if it's not, you have to figure out how to change that. And then finally, <clears throat> I would say involve students, um, yeah. get them to help you with the policies and practices so that they understand, get them to help you with um, the, the, the formative assessment and all the ways we've already talked about. So they're already right. involved uh, so that a grade is um, uh, what Rick Stiggins, I don't know, 20, 30, 30 years ago now used to say no surprises and no excuses. Right, right. I remember him saying that for sure. Sue, I know you're pressed for time. We've got two questions as we finish up to uh, two questions left. This first one is one I had. They're both questions I ask everybody who comes to the podcast. The first one, you can take this in any direction you want to. Uh, but the question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Uh, in a word, equity. Yeah. And um, I, I worry about... Everything from the big stuff, uh, like when I was a college professor at Duquesne and many of my students were going to be superintendents, you know, they were all worried about things like tax bases. Mm -hmm. um, and in some districts, they just have more money to spend than right. other districts. Uh, background um, and experience of students, especially with things like um, access to stories being read and books to read and you know, we've all, we've all, there are all kinds of stories about, you know, Dolly Parton giving books to kids who never had them and what a difference that makes. It, it, it's true. I have had a little breakthrough on that front. I, I worked um, actually last year with, it was during the pandemic, so it was all remote, uh, with some arts teachers in New York City who on their own came up with the idea that good formative assessment is an agent for equity. Because at least in your classroom, Every kid has access to what are we trying to learn and the criteria for good work. What, how will I know the work is good? Yeah. So that despite lack of, of uh, fiscal resources or background resources of whatever kind, in your classroom, 
if you make sure that every kid knows what they're trying to learn and it's something that they really should be trying to learn and should be able to learn and how they'll know they'll do it, you give them the power to, to do, at least in your classroom, the most equitable job you can. But I, I worry about equity in all kinds of equity. big contexts and small because uh, I don't think we're getting all that much better at it. Yeah, um, I think you're you're not alone in in uh, with so many people, uh, and they're 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 being kept up at night uh, because of equity uh, issues for sure in education. Okay, last question, uh, and the question about success. Uh, the question is simply: If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, "What's your definition of success?" How would you answer them, Sue? Well, I'm going to assume you mean, or at least. But what I can take speak it wherever you want. Learning. <laughs> so if you ask us, if if you ask me, what's the success? <clears throat> what's a success at learning for students? That's when students can understand a learning goal, and they take action cognitively, motivationally, behaviorally, and the choices they make to get there. Mm -hmm. If they're doing that, they're going to be successful at some point. Right. Um, and uh, they are already successful at uh, learning how to learn, mm -hmm. uh, which an educational psychologist might call self-regulation. Yeah. But uh, even short of how some psychologists measure that, uh, if a student is taking steps to get to where they think they need to go, that's a successful learning experience in a classroom. The co converse of that is a teacher is a su successful at teaching if they support students to do that, which means they do clearly share learning goals and they have practices in their classroom that allow students to, to make those choices and take those steps that we just said they should be doing. Because in depending on how right. the classroom is set up, uh, that's a lot easier to do in some classrooms than others. Yeah. And and in utilizing everything we've talked about in terms of those classroom assessment systems that we we started our conversation with today listeners you can and should follow susan on twitter her handle is at susan brookhart uh, linkedin you'll also find sue on linkedin and the website is www.susanbrookhart.com i'll have links in the show notes to all of that so uh, sue i really enjoyed this conversation today it was great reconnecting with you so uh, thanks so much for doing this thanks tom i had i had a good time and i i hope we spread some good information yeah, I, 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 we absolutely did. I know you did that and uh, appreciate having you. Thanks so much. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to just quickly remind you, especially those of you who are leading an assessment transformation in your school or your district, to be patient and trust the process. Now, some of you know that that phrase, trust the process, was, of course, made famous by the Philadelphia 76ers a number of years ago when they were purposefully just being as bad as possible to secure high draft picks for several years in a row. Fans were upset that the team was so bad, and they were. And the team's general manager and the entire organization used to respond by saying, trust the process, right? It was moderately successful, but not what many had anticipated. But that's where that sort of phrase became famous, I suppose. Okay, back to assessment. We really do need to trust the process. As some of you have heard me say before, we need urgency for the ideas, but we need patience with people. 
As much as I love doing keynote presentations, large-scale workshops, or one-day PD events, I really love developing a long-term, or at least a longer-term, relationship with a school or a district. And recently, I've had a couple of experiences that really do mirror one another, and, it, and they were good reminders to me, and I wanted to share the lesson or the experience with you to give you some insight or some long-term vision of what that might look like. These longer-term relationships often entail me coming to the school or the district for multiple days to do some on-site coaching as the school initiates their shift to more sound assessment and grading practices. The model often involves these series of meetings with small groups. The times usually follow the times of their daily schedules, so the hired substitute teachers can rotate through the classes. The small groups, sometimes they're random, sometimes they're departmentally or grade level focused. They come with their questions or their topics, and we dig into those topics. Now, sometimes those questions are shared ahead of time, and sometimes it's on the spot, and sometimes it's a little bit of both. Now, these sessions for me are exhilarating, honestly, as it really keeps me in touch with the issues classroom teachers face as they're transitioning their assessment and grading practices, and it actually sort of helps test, so to speak, my skills and my expertise. They are really rewarding sessions, but they don't necessarily come without a little tension. At times, a little professional awkwardness, because not everyone is thrilled with the change or thrilled that I'm there. Now, one thing I've noticed over the years is that the sessions, no matter where I go, seem to follow a fairly predictable pattern. And this is what I want you to hear so that you don't overreact to the initial reactions people have when the assessment changes are initiated. And look, I'm not guaranteeing this will happen, but it is so common that I think it really does serve as a bit of a microcosm for the change process. So let me sketch this out using four different sessions as sort of the framework of the model. When I first arrive at a school where there's been some declaration that we're moving in this direction, right? Assessment, standards-based grading, or whatever it is. And there's usually been some PD that's preceded my arrival, whether it was done by me or someone else. There's some PD that lays the groundwork to begin with. I show up on that first coaching session and there is a real mix in the room, right? There's the early adopters who are raring to go and said, we should have done this five years ago. There's those that are agreeable, but they might be a little bit hesitant. There are those who, yeah, they don't really want to change, right? And they try to, sometimes they'll try to dis dismiss or diminish the effort by saying things like, uh, oh, I already do all that. That's usually code for, I don't want to change, right? So when somebody says, oh, I already do all that, and you know they don't do all that, that's usually code for, I don't want to be different. Or someone else might uh, take the, the, the phrase and say, oh, isn't that just good teaching? That's sort of, you know, this sort of reductive, like what you're saying doesn't, you know, do anything for me or whatever. Then also in the room, there are those that are outright hostile, right? There's And, and a lot of times they're not even able to hide it. <laughs> so it's a real mix in the room, right? So when I first arrive, there's all of that. We have our session. Again, sometimes it gets a little bit awkward. People push back. But they're usually relatively productive coaching sessions. Again, not without issues. I have been the target of many people's frustrations. And I know that sometimes it's me. Not everyone likes everyone. And sometimes it's the fact that I'm there. Like, this is a district initiative. I'm sort of the face of it, even though it's, you know, it's not my thing. I don't work in the district, but people take me as like the face of the franchise, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but that's how they interpret it. And we're dealing with a lot of why questions. Why do we have to change? Why does this have to go along? So often the leaders that have asked me to come and work with their schools or their districts, they often leave those meetings quite disheartened because some of the resistance, some of the way that some of the faculty acts and the tension that can arise in that meeting. 
you know, but but most still forge ahead. But there's a level of frustration like, wow, this this is so it's intense. I've seen it enough now to know to tell the leaders to just trust the process and to not expect people to snap out of it. Right. They're not going to snap out of it. Right. They, they know this. But it's really easy to forget when you're in the thick of it, right? When you're so close to the change. Okay, so a month or so goes by, I come back to the school. So I'm here now on my second visit. I come back and we repeat the same cycle. Small groups, rotational substitute teachers, we do the on-site coaching session. Okay. In that second meeting, I usually see and hear that the majority of teachers have at least tried to move ahead and have implemented something small, medium, or large. Just some, they've, they've tried something. They come in wanting some feedback from me, or maybe we sort of workshop something like a rubric, or we troubleshoot some of their new approaches to uh, assessment and grading. Like, hey, Tom, can you help me sort of revise my reassessment practice because I'm feeling re- really overwhelmed, something like that. So I tend to see a lot of movement out of most of the people, but the hardcore resistors, often in this second session, are still digging in But the gap between the two, they're not an equal-sized group. The gap between those two groups, the adopters and the resistors, starts to widen. Now, more often than not, some of the resistors have even tried a few of those things and have had some moderate success. But there is still that tension. Like, there's just a level of, uh, you know, they're just resistant and, and reluctant. So leaders can leave that second meeting feeling still a bit frustrated. Okay, let's go to the third meeting. When I return for the third visit, again, probably a month and a half or two months later or however, you know, whatever the intervals are, when I return for my third visit, this is where in that third visit, the shift is noticeable. The entire nature of the meetings typically shifts and it's quite obvious. We just start digging into the how and even the resistors are starting to soften their definitive stances. I mean, not everyone, I know that but it's usually significant enough to notice. Now, I know that I have something to do with that. I'm not going to drop some faux humility here. I know I have something to do with that. But the truth is, the real reason that this shift occurs is because of the supportive persistence of leaders in between my visits, the one-on-one conversations they have, the support of the departmental shifts, or the nudging of the shifts in practices or norms that move a school from why to how. It's usually after this third visit where the leaders of the work, the principal, department leaders, or whatever, they notice the significant shift in the nature of the meetings. They notice the tone, right? Almost everyone seems to be focused on how or refining some of the nuances. Again, I know I help with the technicalities, right? It's, but, and, that, and that's more about having an outside expert. It's not a Tom thing. It could be anybody, right? Having an outside expert often allows just some of the technicalities and some of that experience to come to the conversation, But it's the leader's consistent messaging, support, and guidance that makes the biggest difference. And I really mean that because meeting with me four times for an hour is not going to change anything if there's not a consistent and supportive effort that comes behind that. And that typically is what leaders do. Now, by the fourth meeting, we're really at the refinement stage. A month and a half, two months later, I come back to the school and people start bringing in their rubrics to edit and refine. They start asking about specific procedural maneuvers to create more efficiency in the execution of a new practice. It's a real kind of roll up your sleeves, get into the nuances kind of session. We're digging into so many of the aspects of the change. And again, by no means is everything done, not even close. But it's usually here where we're past the why 
and maybe even past the big obvious hows. It's the refinement or bringing alignment to some of the collective efforts that have happened. So we try to align individuals as different teachers have tried different things in their classrooms. Again, I'm not saying this is always going to happen as seamlessly as it sounds, but I have to tell you from my experience, it happens the majority of the time in some semblance of how I just described it. The lesson here for those of you leading this initiative to revamp the assessment and grading culture is to stick with it. Be patient. Again, urgency for the conversation, but patience with people. As much as it is challenging for students to shift their mindsets when teachers start making changes, it can be even more challenging for adults to make those changes in the first place. It takes time to unravel the habits we've built up over so many years. When everyone understands that this too shall not pass, most will tend to settle into, okay, let me figure this out. That, that kind of mindset, right? Again, I know not everyone, but most. Now, sometimes I'll get from people, but you don't understand, Tom. You don't understand our school or you don't understand our staff. Yes, I'm afraid. Yes, I do. I know if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, Tom, you don't understand our students or you don't understand our staff. Um, I know every school can run into hiccups or all out roadblocks from policies, past practices or personnel. Stick with it. Trust the process. Whatever the plan is, make sure you stick with it. Yes, you have to sometimes adjust acutely based on emerging information or current practices, but be persistent in your pursuit. Urgency for ideas, patience with people. Trust the process and know that more often than not, the consistent time, attention, focus, and purposeful efforts will pay off. Look, it's not as simple as time on task. You have to have some understanding and a level of expertise to lead the shift long term. You don't have to know everything, but you have to know enough to lead it. And you have to be thoughtful about what the process will look like. But so often I find just a level of stick often makes the biggest difference. So we agreed to go in this direction. We'll figure it out together. We'll adjust as we need to. But in the end, we will bring about some you know, seismic shifts to the assessment and grading culture of our school. You know, so that, that's the kind of messaging. Stick with it. Change can take time, okay? But change is very achievable. Just trust the process. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com for any suggestions you have or questions you have for Assessment Corner. A reminder to check out the show notes for the links for the upcoming Grading from the Inside Out and Standards-Based Learning and Action trainings as well coming this spring. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform, especially Apple Podcasts, of course, but Spotify or anywhere that you listen to your podcast. If there's a rating system, I would greatly appreciate that. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and your colleagues or on social media. I would also really appreciate that, too. Have a great week, everyone.